Take your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This is a psalm written by David, but it's about David's Lord. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, some of you have already figured it out. We've had Psalm 110 read for us this morning, haven't we? And that's precisely the psalm. The Old Testament passage quoted more than any other. Now, we're, if you're visiting this morning, we're glad to have you. We're in a, a series currently on great chapters of the Bible. We've just finished Isaiah 40, and perhaps some of the selection of these chapters is a bit subjective, but I think I'm on solid ground this morning as we move to Psalm 110. It's not just me that sees this psalm as important and big and great, but indeed the first century brothers and sisters and apostles turn to this passage. And, and so my question is why? Why was it that they looked so often to this psalm in the midst of their generation and the situation they were learning or living in? Why did they keep turning to Psalm 110 for comfort and for encouragement? And why don't I look more to this psalm today, even as they did? Well, come with me. Three-fourths of a mile outside of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, And Jesus is saying goodbye to his little band of 11 apostles. And then with his hands uplifted in blessing them, he's taken up into heaven. And they're staring at him as he's, he's just lifted up in their presence. And they watch him as he rises higher and higher until a cloud blocks their vision as he goes on up through the cloud. Just that quickly, he was gone. Their long-expected Messiah had come, the very Son of God become man. They spent the last three years of their lives with him. They saw and heard amazing things. And then they saw him despised and rejected by the chief priests, by the very high court, the religious court of the Jews, 
They saw him humiliated and crucified on a Roman cross, a torture save for the worst of criminals. But he had risen on the third day, just as he said, and he had appeared to them over a space of 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God and telling them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promised spirit. He had told them he was going back to the father who sent him, and now he was gone. But we know that's not the end of the story, is it? The story didn't end at the cloud. There was a topside story to that cloud that day. What happened on the top side of the cloud as Jesus ascended into heaven? And for that, we have to go to the Old Testament scriptures. Was there the shout of Psalm 24? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. And so he's welcomed into the highest heavens amid the praises of angels and spirits of just men made perfect. But then what? Well, then we look to Psalm 110, written nearly a thousand years earlier by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was the coronation of the returned king of glory, the crowning and enthroning of the king, a coronation like no other. Well, what was that like? Well, we're told that God the Father spoke to his son, the king. What did he say to King Jesus? Well, David records it for us here. The very words that the father spoke to his son, we get to listen in on. For the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now we want to ask some questions of this passage and of this psalm. We'll only get the first three verses this morning. The first is, who is this king? Who's who? Well, notice the Lord says to my Lord. The Lord is all caps, the first Lord, isn't it? In our Bibles, that means that's the personal name of God It's sometimes referred to as Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the great I am, the the one who is eternal and self-existent and needing nothing outside of himself. So, So David writes, Yahweh says to my Lord... In other words, he's, he's not equal with David. He is, he's above David. He is his Lord, his master, his sovereign, his king. So this is God saying to God. A clear indication that our God is not a, nomad, a monad. Uh, there's, he's not just one person, but there's more persons in the Godhead than one. For Yahweh is now saying to God, the Lord. Now, we need to be clear on this. Uh, This is none other than the coronation of God the Son. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 22, you remember a few days before his crucifixion, Jesus has come to Jerusalem and the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to trick him with trick questions to catch him in saying something that would make him be unpopular with the people. And so one after another, they come with their questions and and the Sadducees have just had a go at him. And, and then the Pharisees and Herodians before that. And, and one after another, he silences them with their trick questions. And then he takes the offensive and he asks the Pharisees a question of his own. What do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. Everyone knows that. They were right. Messiah was to be a descendant of David. So Jesus said to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Calls this coming Messiah Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quoting from our passage in Psalm 110. Jesus goes on, if David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, they were stumped. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions because it only showed their ignorance of the scriptures and only showed their rebellion against the truth. But you know, the rest of the New Testament answers that question. How can David call him Lord? If he calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, Messiah is David's son because as to his human nature, he is a descendant of David. But David calls him my Lord because as to his divine nature, he is God. He is both God and man, something they refuse to believe and for which they would eventually kill Jesus So what we have in Psalm 110.1 is God the Father speaking to God the Son, the Messiah, as he's just returned from his mission accomplished. The mission that the Father and the Son had devised from eternity past and and, and the Father had sent his Son to accomplish salvation for his people. He's finished that work and he's now returning and these are the words of the Father. Never was a father more pleased with the obedience of a son, then this father with his son. And he says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, referring to this event, the apostle Paul will say in Philippians 2 that God was so pleased with his obedience that God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And David called him my Lord. Well, God the Father is telling him to sit with him on his throne. We're not to think of two thrones in heaven, one for the Father and one for the Son at his right hand. Rather, the thrones of eastern rulers were more like couches 
on which more than one person could sit. And indeed, the book of Revelation says there's but one throne at the center of heaven. It is the throne of God. And in Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, I sat down with my father on his throne there at his right hand. Now, King Charles III is to have a formal coronation ceremony in May when he will officially and ceremonially be crowned king. You can be sure that it will be full of pomp and circumstance and people from all over the world will be watching. But he's just a figurehead king with no real executive power to actually govern the British Empire. No, not so our King Jesus He's no figurehead king. He's an executive king who works out the will of his father in the whole universe. He sits upon the throne that actually rules the universe. And so he's not waiting there at the father's right hand, waiting until all of his enemies are put under his feet before he starts his reign. Rather, he is reigning right now in heaven and will continue to reign. No one else was found worthy, you remember, to take the scroll in heaven and open its seals to bring to pass all the eternal purposes and plans of God in history. Oh, but the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He was found worthy because by his death he's purchased men for God. And so... He was given the scroll. He was given the executive power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. And with that power, he carries out the eternal plans and purposes of God on the earth. He now rules and reigns over all, along with his father on the throne of God. That means every promise in the book, every eternal plan of God has for its guarantee the fact that our Jesus is now sitting upon the throne of God. So now we know who this great king is. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, and he reigns on God's throne. Second, we learn that this enthroned king has enemies. Did you notice that? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This king of glory, as is, is kind and wonderful as he is, has enemies. Peter refers to Psalm 110 when talking to the high court of the Sanhedrin who's arrested him. And Peter says, you killed this Jesus by hanging him on a tree, but, but God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. This king gives amazing gifts. The very things that we need to get in heaven. We must repent. We must have forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus gives these gifts. This king gives freely. These wonderful gifts. But there are those who don't want him. Or his gifts. They don't want to repent of their sins. They love their sins. 
They don't want him telling them what to do with his laws and commands. They, they want to be free to believe and do whatever they want to believe and do. These are the king's enemies who don't want him to rule over them. And if we know anything in our Bibles, one of the, the first chapter we, we looked at was Romans 8, the big chapter of Romans 8. And we learned there in verse 7 that, that the natural mind of all of us as we come into this world is enmity against God. It's hostile toward God. And how does it show it? It refuses to submit to God's laws. Indeed, Isaiah had said in chapter 53 that we all, every single one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one, each one, to his own way. We've said to God, not your way, I'll have it my way, thank you. And that is what constitutes the enemies of this king. Indeed, Psalm 2 says, all the nations are joined in opposition against the Lord and his anointed king, saying, let us break their chains asunder and cast off their fetters from us. So that's what we thought of the commands of, of God and his king Jesus. We, we viewed them as chains and, and fetters holding us down, keeping us back from self-fulfillment and what we could be if only we were free. Let's break these chains. Let's throw them off, they said. And so they ignored them. We ignored them. And we did what we wanted, when we wanted, with whom we wanted. These are the enemies of Christ, the King. And notice, they are enemies that will be subdued, will be put under his feet, made a footstool for his feet. And notice as well, it was God who enthroned Christ and made him king. It was God who said, sit here at my right hand. In other words, King Jesus did not need our vote to make him king. We're, we're so used to that in democracy. Who's the leader of our land? What's the one who gets the most votes? And so, but not Jesus. He was made king by God the Father. He says in Psalm 1 and verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. No, in fact, it was against man's vote. You remember, they despised and rejected him and nailed him to the cross. That's what they thought of this king. They put a crown of thorns and mocked his claim for kingship. A staff in his hand, a purple robe on his body, and then took that staff and hit him in the head and pounded that crown into his head. They mocked his claim to be king. You know, Jesus told a parable about this in Luke chapter 19, about himself and this kingdom, uh, this, this uh, enthronement, this coronation ceremony that we're, we're looking at in Psalm 110. Here was his parable, a man of noble birth, that would be himself went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants together and he gave them 10 minas saying, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we will not have this man to rule over us. He was made king, however, and returned home. And said, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them 
bring them here and kill them in front of me. The father says to his son, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now that is the program that is currently being worked out in the world. It is right now in process from heaven's throne. Jesus' enemies are being put under his feet. They're being subdued in one of two ways. Some are being made converts by grace. Others are being crushed and frustrated in his wrath. And one day it will be complete. Every last enemy will be totally subdued. And the rebellion in heaven and on earth will be squashed and put down forever. That's coming. But until then, there will be conflict. And over it all, there on the throne of God, Jesus reigns, unthreatened. In fact, laughing at man's vain attempts to throw off his authority. So we've seen who the king is, and we've seen, what was it that we've just seen? Uh, oh, that he has enemies, and now we see thirdly how Christ the king is presently reigning. Verse and three, verses 2 and 3 explain this, the present reign of Christ as it's being carried out on earth. Verse 2 says, to Christ... The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. When Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, he told Pilate that he is a king and has a kingdom, but it's not like the kingdoms of this world. Rather, it's from another place. It's from heaven. Now, we're used to territorial kingdoms, aren't we? Uh, clearly marked out by borders and boundaries. Uh, these uh, people serve this king, this leader, uh, this constitution, these laws. And over here is another one. And they're clearly marked out one from the other by borders. Jesus' kingdom is not like that. Rather, his present reign is right in the midst of his enemies. So yes, here's the kingdoms of the world, and they're, they're all against God and against his king and throwing off his laws. But, but in the midst of them, Jesus is reigning right in the midst of his enemies. You see that? Verse 2. It's a spiritual reign in a world under the control of the evil one. And notice God is extending his mighty scepter. He's expanding. He's advancing his kingdom in the world, right in the midst of his enemies. In spite of all their hostility and opposition to his reign, in spite of all their preferred false religions, in spite of their hatred of God's laws and their new morality replacing it, in spite of their anti-God legislation and their persecution of Christ's people, he still reigns. And he's expanding his kingdom on earth right in the midst of his enemies. What a king. None like it. Frustrating the plans of his enemies, even making their plans to fulfill his greater purposes. Now his kingdom 
is expanding. His power is being put forth from Zion. That is from the church, the people of God, the dwelling place of God. It's from the church that the the reigning power of Christ is being extended into the world. So as we use the spiritual weapons of prayer and the gospel, which is the very power of God, the power from the throne of heaven to convert people, to turn enemies into willing servants of Christ. It's through the church carrying out the great commission of our king, witnessing the gospel to the ends of the earth in the power of his Holy Spirit, winning converts, making disciples, seeing them baptized into local churches, This is how Christ is advancing his kingdom in this period of his reign until he comes again. It's through the mighty gospel. Christ is building his church and conquering his enemies and not even the gates of hell can stand against its onslaught. It's going to advance. Hell's gates must give way before the advancing power of Christ through his church with the gospel I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth is the resolve of this king. And verse 3 says that King Jesus not only has enemies, but he also has willing troops to serve him. That's Zion. That's his church. That's you and me believers. We are his willing troops. Now, they're likened to the morning dew. Notice he says, verse 3, your troops, your troops, speaking to the, the Lord Jesus, King Jesus, your troops will be willing on your day of power or of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. These are poetic words and they're difficult to translate, but the basic meaning is clear. Jesus has willing troops to serve him, an army of soldiers in his kingdom. And he compares them to the morning dew, perhaps as numerous as the droplets of dew as you go out in the morning and you you see all these droplets on the the grass. And, And then not only numerous as the droplets, but sparkling. Don't they sparkle there in the grass, sparkling with the splendor of holiness, the beauty of holiness when the morning sun hits the dew drops and is fresh and energetic as youth. Now, these are the troops of King Jesus, and we have to ask, well, where did they come from? Well, they came from the camp of the king's enemies. Every last one of them. You and I, we were once enemies of this king. And if you're today a willing troop, trooper, it's because you were made willing in the day of his power. From the throne of heaven came forth a power to take you and your crusty heart that said, I will go my way, not your way. And that power conquered your heart and and turned you around and gave you a new heart. That instead of going your way, you wanted to be done with your way and you wanted to follow Jesus You wanted to trust in him to save you and wanted to live for him and now serve his purposes and his mission on earth. It's nothing less than the power of our king unleashed through his spirit, through the church, witnessing and preaching the gospel that enemies of Christ 
have become willing troops. You know, Mr. Putin's having a hard time finding willing troops to fight his battle against Ukraine. Not so our King Jesus. They offer themselves willingly. What would you have me to do, Lord? What constrains them? What moves them to serve him? The love of Christ compels us. That this one that lived and died for us and rose again and now reigns for us. I want to stop living for myself and start living for him. And what we find is this is really life. This is life as it was meant to be. And so with gladness and joy and voluntary willingness, we come as willing troops made willing in the day of his power. Now, that's why they counted a privilege to march under the banner of the cross to serve its king, Jesus. Now, I I just want us to think about how Jesus extended his kingdom in the book of Acts. We've seen Jesus is king on the throne that rules heaven and earth. We've said that he is extending and expanding his kingdom right in the midst of his enemies and calling out a willing army of troops. Notice how he does this in the book of Acts. We begin at chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost. Peter himself was a conquered soldier, conquered by the love and grace of Jesus, who died for him and forgave him all of his sins. He had seen Christ risen from the dead and saw him ascend into heaven. and, And from Psalm 110 is given to understand what happened, that he went on up and sat down at the right hand of the throne in heaven. And so now just 10 days after Jesus has ascended, Peter stands in Jerusalem, the headquarters of anti-Jesus sentiment, the very place where just seven weeks earlier they murdered Jesus. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter tells the large crowd gathered there, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, even as your scriptures say. And more than that, he is exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Messiah is the risen and reigning Lord on God's throne. And all the people, as they heard this, were cut to their heart and said, What shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 enemies were subdued under the feet of Jesus that day as they accepted the message. They believed it. They repented of their sin. They repented of their going their own way, of what they thought of Jesus and done to Jesus and they offered themselves willing to serve him. They put their trust in him. To save them. They 
became part of the growing ranks of enemies who've been made willing by the day of his power. Snatched from where? Right out of the enemy camp. Are you starting to see why first century Christians and apostles turned to Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage? It proclaimed that their Messiah, who had died in weakness upon a cross, and a death that looked like defeat, that it was actually the most glorious victory. And he was not only raised, but he's now reigning and is fulfilling the eternal plans of Almighty God in the salvation of sinners. With such a king on the throne, they're ready to face anything. So you see them standing against their enemies. And the enemies of Christ did do all they could to stop the extension of Christ's kingdom, didn't they? And there was Deacon Stephen, and he's preaching, and they haul him out and stone him. You remember what he said while he was being stoned to death? Look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, Psalm 110 was reverberating in his heart, even as he's dying. And there was a man that day that was standing there voting for Stephen's blood. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And the effect of seeing Stephen stoned to death did to him what blood does to a wild animal. It just made him thirsty for more. And he became the ringleader of a great persecution that broke out that very day to extinguish Christians from the face of the earth, to destroy the memory of Jesus of Nazareth. And so thirsty was he for the blood of Christians that he had got letters from the Jewish authorities to go to Syria, a different nation, and to see if there were any Christians in Damascus, followers of Jesus, and to arrest them and to bring them down to Jerusalem and imprison them. Do you think King Jesus didn't notice this? He's breathing out slaughter against the church of Christ. Jesus sees this man, sees what's in his heart, and he arrested him on the road to Damascus, just outside of Damascus. He stopped him in his tracks, and in overpowering grace changed his heart He falls to the ground, and it is a converted Saul of Tarsus that then seeks to do, what will you have me to do, Lord? And and what does he do? He starts to preach the very gospel that he was once living to destroy. There in Damascus, preaching so effectively that the Jews now want to kill him. And they have to let him out of the the city through a hole in the wall in a basket at night and He escapes and goes on. And you know how many times he was nearly put to death, stoned and left for dead and so on. Never did a man labor so intensely and suffer more costly to extend the kingdom of Christ than Saul of Tarsus. And he was a willing servant, a willing trooper. Because the Lord Jesus 
that I met on the road to Damascus loved me and gave himself for me. He says, what can I do to serve you? Nothing was too hard. He began at once and continued till his life was taken from Nero, the Roman emperor. Do you see how some enemies were brought under Jesus' feet by converting power? Others were brought down in a different way. Acts chapter 12, there's King Herod, and he starts to arrest and persecute the Christians, and he notices when he does, the Jews give him more popularity with them. They're happy about it, so he kills the apostle James, and he arrests Peter because he sees the Jews were pleased, and he plans to kill James or Peter after the Passover, after the feast is over. But Psalm 110 has taught the church that their king is on a throne that rules the universe. And they take the weapon of all prayer and they start addressing their king in heaven. Their sovereign Lord, the one who rules all that he's made. And they're crying for the release of Peter from prison. And from the throne, an angel is dispatched down to that prison and breaks loose the chains that held him. And conducts Peter right out through the guards. And when they come to the iron gate, it opens of itself. What was that? That was King Jesus reigning over his enemies. You remember, Peter had a harder time getting into the prayer meeting than he did getting out of prison. They didn't believe it was him. But it was. Jesus had acted in behalf of his kingdom. Sometimes God rules over people in grace and makes them his willing troops. And other times the obstinate find wrath. So by the end of the chapter, where's King Herod? Well, God dispatches another angel and he strikes him down and he's eaten with worms and he dies. But the word of the Lord continued to spread. That's our king. That's what he's doing. Can you see then why these first century Christians loved Psalm 110? Their risen and reigning king was extending his power, growing his church, pouring out his spirit, protecting his people, and even through martyrdom was planting seeds and purifying his church, bringing glory to his name. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about, that we heard in the Sunday school. What was that? That was King Jesus, the executor of the kingdom of heaven, sending out his spirit, finding a Roman monk, his enemy, thinking blasphemous thoughts about God, and conquering him, and bringing him down beneath his feet, making him a worshiper. What was going on? We heard it. The church at Rome had stolen the gospel from the people. King Jesus would not have that. My gospel must triumph. And so he, he turns this enemy into a willing troop. And, and he and many others work together to preach the gospel and to publish the gospel. And hundreds of thousands of people in Europe became willing troops for King Jesus, believing the gospel that we're saved 
by grace, through faith in Christ alone, not by our obedience. That's Christ on the throne, executively pouring out his spirit in revival. And folks, it's still happening. It's still going on. We can think of his wonderful works in China in the last century. It's estimated that in 1949, there were one million Protestant believers in China. That's the year the communist atheistic regime came to power under Chairman Mao Zedong. And all foreign missionaries were expelled. A strict state control of the Christian churches was imposed with the aim that Christianity would just soon die a natural death and be replaced by atheism. Well, it didn't die, but led to the birth of the underground house church movement. Well, the enemy responded with a reign of terror during the Cultural Revolution that viewed Christians as against the state. They're preaching a Western gospel. It's, it's somehow against us as, as a nation. And so all religion was banned, viciously attacked by the Red Guard. Bibles burned, churches closed, Christians tortured, imprisoned, their goods confiscated, families separated, parents sent off into labor camps for re-education. Tens of hundreds of thousands of Christians were martyred. Crucifixions were not unknown. And at last, religion was officially pronounced dead in China. Many wondered about the future of the gospel in China. But Jesus Christ was still on his throne. And he was still ruling all the time in the midst of his enemies in China. And he used the persecution to purify his church, to burn up the chaff, the easy believism, those that did not truly trust in the Savior for their salvation and offer themselves up willingly. God was purifying his church, even growing it, because he often uses the blood of the martyrs to be the seed of his church. And in 1976... It was Mao that died, and with him, his movement. And when the smoke cleared, you know what was found? The church of Jesus was alive and well. And just 50 years after 1949, when Mao came to power, Protestant believers in China had grown from 1 million to 100 million. It's one of the greatest revivals this world has ever known. Well, there's problems in the church, yes, and, and the Chinese government now is reverting back to Mao's strict persecution of Christians there, but it's all in the hands of our king. Amen. And he's working out his perfect plan. Why does Psalm 110 not mean so much to us? Maybe it's because we've been so protected from persecution and, and, and Christianity has given a, been given a free ride here like it's not in other nations. And now we're starting to see a bit of the gloves come off and see the real enmity against our Lord and his king and the legislation against his laws. And we might start to wonder what is the future for Christianity here and we might start to become fearful as we look at the nations of the world and how they're combined in their hatred of our king 
And we look at it and we say, it looks out of control. It can't be out of control. Why not? Because the one who died on the cross is risen and is reigning on the throne of God right now. And that's why the first century Christians took hope, took heart, found courage to go out and to preach Christ. Yes, and despise Christ, but it's in the preaching of the word that the Spirit was poured out from heaven and changed the hearts of men into willing troops of King Jesus. So, so let's be encouraged with Psalm 110. We've just seen the first half. There's even more encouragement in the second half. But you notice... King Jesus has both enemies and friendly troops that serve him. Which are you? Which are you? Have you obeyed his gospel, calling you to repent, to turn from going your own way and to trust in the Son of God? Have, have you bowed at his feet and said, it's no more my will, Lord, it's now your will, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life? Have you repented? Have you believed? Have you been baptized? Have you been joined to a local church, a willing band of Christ's people to march together, to preach together, to witness together, to pray together? That's what he's doing. That's how the Savior's reigning in this era. Believers, are you joining your king and extending his reign to the ends of the earth. You're praying for our missionaries. Well, we put our money in. There's enemies to be fought. And all prayer is, is the weapon. The first century turned to that weapon. They had a king on the throne that said, ask of me. And, and I will do whatever you ask that the son may bring glory to the father. You can ask anything in my name and I will do it. Then, then let's lay hold. We have a king in heaven to answer our prayers and extend his kingdom in this place and around the world? Are you seeking first his kingdom and righteousness? Are you giving him the best of your service? Willingly, gladly giving him your money, your time, your effort because of what he's done for you. You see, Psalm 110 says to us, rise up, O church of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the king of kings. He's gathering his willing troops with all authority and power given to him from all the nations of the world, even from this decadent nation. Let's join him. He's calling us to go and make disciples, knowing he will be with us to the end of the age. And where's the next generation to come up with the fresh dew of the youth? Where, where's the next missionary generation being willing to, to leave home and to go and to preach the gospel? Where's the next pastors and deacons and faithful church members to, to pursue this extension of Christ's kingdom? Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helper other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side, whom for him will go. By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine.
Send me, Lord. If it means to the neighbor across the driveway, send me. If it means to labor with the children in this church, send me. If it means to pray more for the missionaries that we send to the other ends of the earth, call me to prayer. What a king. What a mighty king. What a gracious king. What gifts he gives. Well, let's let's sing of him. He's risen and reigning. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. It doesn't say period. It says, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he is. So as you set your eyes on Jesus, see him there. See him there reigning and putting enemies under his feet, making some his willing troops and frustrating others. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. It's number 217, and let's look and see our Savior at the Father's right hand. 217, stand and sing to our King. Pray with me. Our Father, we bow in your presence and in the presence of your Son, our King, at your right hand. And we thank you that he not only lived for us the life that we couldn't live. He died for us the death we deserve to, to die, a death under your wrath. He rose again triumphant over sin and death and hell, and he now reigns at your right hand. Thank you for this sight of him from Psalm 110. Thank you that he's still there, that the same God of Martin Luther, the same God of the apostles in the book of Acts, the same God of that let loose his power in China in the last century is our God today and give us more, more trust and more faith in such a faithful Savior and King. Bring others today to bow their knee to this Savior, to confess him, Lord, even now, while there is still grace to be had. Receive our praise, our thanks, and our service, our willing service as we offer it up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.